Welcome to the Write Your Book in a Flash podcast with Dan Janelle. You'll learn how successful people just like you have grown their businesses, expanded their influence, and made more money by writing a book. On each episode, you'll learn the inside secrets to help you create a book that can serve as a powerful marketing tool to skyrocket your business. I'm your host, Dan Janelle. I help thought leaders, business executives, and entrepreneurs write their books. To find out more, go to writeyourbookinaflash.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Robbie Baxter. How are you, Robbie? Good, Dan. It's great to see you. Great seeing you again. We've known each other through many iterations over the years, <laughs> and I'm so delighted to welcome you uh, to talk about your new book, which is just launching. Why don't you tell us about what you do and who your book is for? Sure. So this is my second book, uh, The Forever Transaction, How to Build a Subscription Model So Compelling Your Customers Will Never Want to Leave. And I wrote it so that people who want to start building subscription revenue or improve and iterate on their existing subscription business model can be successful by focusing on the long-term relationship that they have with their customers and the forever promise that they're making to the people they serve. Fantastic. Now, I've known you when you were a different kind of marketing person, and you pivoted. Why did you decide to leave what you had known and take on something new and interesting and different? I think our listeners would love to know how to pivot, especially in these interesting times. Yeah, so um, when I so I got I'll, I'll take you all the way back um, when I was uh, pregnant with my uh, second daughter, uh, who is now nineteen, um, and went on maternity leave. When I returned to my product management job, I was informed that I was laid off, <laughs> and I said, "Okay, I need to earn my share of the mortgage, um, but I need more flexibility and I need more control." So I started consulting. And within just a few months of consulting, uh, I found Alan Weiss, who we both know, uh, you know, subject matter expert on uh, consulting, independent consulting. And he said, you really have to have an area of expertise. You have to write a book. So I'm thinking, you know, what can I write a book on? What is a topic that I can really go deep on that I can find interesting enough to stick with for a long time, but also narrow enough that I could credibly be a differentiated expert on it. And um, my fifth client uh, was Netflix, just serendipitous uh, that, that Netflix happened to be that client. And I loved their business model. I loved, you know, three DVDs out at a time for a fixed price, always have something to watch. And I loved recurring revenue. And I started seeing how the different pieces of their business model, that each piece was a little bit different than um, than other kinds of organizations that I'd worked with. And as I was falling in love with Netflix, everybody else was, and people started asking me, you know, hey, can I work with you? I heard you worked with Netflix. I want to do something like Netflix. And so gradually over time, I kind of doubled down on this space of membership models, subscription pricing, premium services. And it took me 10 years from that time, from working with Netflix before I actually decided to write the book and really be committed to being a subject matter expert on, on this space. And why did you decide on, on, on that? I mean, what, what turned you on about that whole idea? By the way, I love recurring revenue. I've, I've done PR leads for 20 years <laughs> now and I've had money coming in every single day for 20 years and you can't beat it. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Well, it's, it's funny that you say that because 
when I, um, you know, after I'd worked with Netflix and some other companies, you know, I was getting all these requests, especially here in Silicon Valley for marketing and strategy help around their subscription model. But when I would talk to other people and explain what I was doing and how it might be relevant, people didn't see it. And that's why I wrote the first book was to say, look, recurring revenue is a pretty great thing. And by the way, almost any business can enjoy the benefits of recurring revenue, but you have to think about it holistically and here's how. So that's, that's what I wrote in the membership economy was kind of that, that was like my opportunity to explain what I was seeing that other people for whatever reason weren't seeing. And it was a topic that I found endlessly interesting. You know, I kept thinking, does it, you know, it works for SaaS, but does it work for newspapers? Like they've been doing subscription for a long time. Can I teach them something? Oh, maybe I can. What about associations? Oh, that's interesting. What about retailers? Does this fit with loyalty programs? Yeah, it does. They all come back to this same concept. And so I felt like I had enough kind of intellectual content there that it could justify um, a focus for a long period of time. So you really had to educate many different parts of the industry on a new concept. That wasn't really a new concept, but yeah. they, they, they didn't see it, even though it was right in front of them, even though people like me were doing this in our own little way and Netflix was doing it in their own big way. There were other people who couldn't see the subscription model, even though others were benefiting from them. Right. They didn't see the pattern. Mm -hmm. They saw these discrete things like, yeah, there's Netflix and there's PR leads and there's my newspaper and my gym. But they didn't see the shared attributes of each and they didn't see how it could apply to them. So that was why, you know, that was why I wrote the membership economy five years later. Everybody wants to do subscription revenue. I don't have to explain why it's so good anymore and why, you know, people like you have been enjoying it for such a long time. Now people are finally understanding the, the power of recurring revenue and the power of having loyal customers that pay you on a regular basis because you provide ongoing value to them. Exactly. Now, this opens up a whole big idea Prospects come to me and they say, I have this great idea to do and then fill in the blank. And it's something mm -hmm. that no one has ever heard of before and they're zealots about it. And I tell them, well, how much money do you have to spend to educate the world about this? In fact, when I was doing high-tech PR, that was all, we got tons of software clients like that who had pie-in-the-sky dreams and ideas and no money to fund it. So you educated an entire, many different vertical markets. Tell us, how do you become, a, I would say, a proselytizer or a, a, an evangelist uh, for a new concept? And how do you turn that into a book that, that's believable, that people can easily ad adopt? Because they did. You did the work. Mm -hmm. How can other people do that same kind of work? Well, I think what I did was I focused on the early adopters. And I, didn't, I knew that I didn't have the resources as one person with limited kind of budget to educate the whole world. So I started with, you know, software as a service and consumer software that was in my, you know, my, my local geography, it was in my network and I worked there. And then I kept kind of writing and kind of putting little bits out to see if it was validated in other markets. 
And, um, you know, you would ask about the writing the book. I, I, when I was seeing like, wow, there's a pattern between my clients in news and my clients in associations and my clients in, um, in software, I said, okay, I'm going to write this down. And then when somebody's interested in talking to me, I'm going to give them the book and see if they see what I'm seeing. Kind of like a one pound business card to share my point of view. And then once they read it, if they liked that, then they could come and say they wanted to work with me. But I wouldn't have to do the heavy lifting of trying to find these people and explain it to them. Fantastic. How else did you use the book to, uh, in marketing to get new clients? So, so first of all, just writing the book got me new clients. So mm. something that I would advise people to think about when they're writing a book is just the process of saying, I'm writing a book opens up doors. So it gives you the opportunity to interview people that you're interested in and learn from them. And in some cases, that might lead organically to, to work or to a really deep relationship that becomes a referral source. So as an example, um, I did a cold outreach to Pandora, the music company, because I wanted to feature them in the book. And I was able to interview the CEO and founder of Pandora. You know, I, I was, you know, you could have knocked me over with a feather that, you know, he was willing to talk to me, but because I was writing a book. So um, that's been helpful. Um, also, in my book, I wrote about a lot of the software, uh, the underlying software for MySpace. Um, so these are like the vendors that sell to my clients. So I built a community of other people that were reaching out to this very specific group. And so we all knew that if somebody was talking to them, they might be interested in what I do and vice versa. So finding your, your network um, was something that I was able to do through the book by, again, reaching out to the vendors that supported subscriptions and memberships. Um, I um, have, you know, as, a, as an author, I was able to be a LinkedIn uh, instructor. Mm -hmm. um, I was invited to be a LinkedIn instructor. That opened up a bunch of doors as well. So I sort of feel like writing the book opened up a lot of doors that I didn't even know were closed. I didn't know the doors were there. And suddenly they just opened. Another one was speaking. You know, once I wrote the book, a lot of people started to invite me to speak at conferences, which led to more client work. Um, I still, you know, the book has sold. I've been lucky because the timing was very good with subscriptions. The book has sold. Both books have actually sold pretty well. But I still give away a lot of books as well as a way of getting to know somebody and giving them a chance to get to know my point of view. Great. Um why did you decide to write the second book and how does it differ from the first book? So we have the evangelical book. What follows the, the evangelical book? The playbook. The playbook <laughs> follows the evangelical book. So the first book was, hey, the membership economy, it's a thing. It's really great. It could be great for you. Here's what it can do for you and here's how to do it. And five years later, people, they get it. And so now the next question is when I, when I meet people is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand subscription. I understand membership. We tried it once. It didn't work. Or we're doing it, but we have this problem. We have a leaky bucket. Our customers are leaving us. How do I do it? So I wrote the Forever Transaction to explain for organizations starting out with subscriptions, scaling their subscriptions, or trying to maintain relevance and a leadership position with a, with a subscription they've had for a long time to give them very specific guidance on you know, kind of how to avoid the pitfalls and how to build the right kind of model. Um, the other reason, though, since this is really a you know a conversation for authors and, and wannabe authors, 
Um, the other reason that I wrote The Forever Transaction after my first book is that just the process of writing the book made me smarter. Um, it forced me to ask and answer questions that had been kind of floating just out of my reach um, for, for, for months or years. And it allowed me to really pin down some of the ideas and frameworks that could be really powerful for the people that I served. So even if nobody ever bought the book, the process of writing the book was incredibly valuable to me. Very cool. You spoke to a lot of famous people in your books. And some of my clients or prospects or people who don't become clients and prospects talk themselves out of it because they, they have the imposter syndrome and they wonder, like, how could I talk to a Mark Cuban? How could I talk to these famous people? Or would these famous people even talk to me? So tell me a little bit more about how you reach these people and how you built rapport with them. Yeah, so it, different ways for different people. And I'll also say, you know, I think sometimes in the community, people only talk about their successes. And I just want to say that there were a lot of people that I asked that said no. Hmm. Um, and some of them were nice about it. And some of them were kind of rude about it. Some people said, I don't really think that this is new or interesting. And so to some extent, you have to have a thick skin if you're going to ask people for things. Um, another thing is um, I looked for people who um, were already talking about, where I'd already seen clues, but they were interested in my point of view, that the point of view that I had was going to resonate with them. So for example, um, you know, Pandora talks a lot about their relationships with their listeners and about being in it for the long term and about not trying to be, you know, the sexy new thing because they want to actually have a really long-term relationship with their customers. And so I knew that it was likely that he would like what I'm talking about. There would be kind of a, an alignment there. Um, so that was one thing. Another thing is sometimes I'd write about them in advance and say, hey, I'm working on this piece about you based on publicly available information. I'd love to get a quote or two. So there, you know, a couple things happen. I think um, you're, you're the PR expert, so you, you probably know this better than, than I. But my experience was that, first of all, if they see that they're already going to be in the book, whether or not they give you a quote, they take you a little more seriously and they might, you know, be more inclined to give you um, a comment. Also, they want to make sure that you describe it in a way that is aligned with what they're doing. So there's an opportunity for engagement. I also interviewed a lot of people that I had, um, if not a first degree connection with, a second or third degree connection um, using sort of my, my professional and personal network to reach these people. Um, you know, uh, the first book, um, I have a foreword that was written by um, Alan, Blue, um, Alan Blue, who's the um, one of the co-founders of LinkedIn. And I didn't know him, but I had worked with the person who became head of product at LinkedIn. And I had interviewed him early on with my book when I was actually not confident at all and maybe having a little imposter syndrome of my own. And I, you know, I interviewed Joss and I said, hey, this is the book I'm thinking about writing. What do you think? And he's like, oh, you know, that's pretty good. I, this part I don't know about. Like it was a really, you know, meaty interview with him where he was giving me a lot of advice. And then he said, you know, I'm not really the person to talk to. And, and I thought he was trying to politely blow me off. But really what he was saying is you should talk to Alan Blue, who's the founder of LinkedIn, because he's the one in our organization that really is focused on membership, community, long-term relationships. 
And I ended up getting that introduction, you know, through the organic process of researching for the book. Fantastic. They're great success stories. and I didn't realize that people blew you off, too. I bet they're upset now that they're not in the book. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, there's this concept of efficient markets, like with this idea that, you know, the best people are going to be the hardest to get. And the not best, you know, the, the less important someone else is, the easier it's going to be to reach them and talk to them. And that's not true at all. It's not an efficient market. It's not like the better they are, the harder they are to reach. Sometimes the best people are really accessible and interested and get your ideas. And then some person that you thought would totally want to help you or want to talk to you or be interested in what you're doing isn't. So I think a mistake that people sometimes make is that a a relatively, let's say, a low-level, easy-to-reach person isn't interested, and so you assume that, therefore, you must aim lower. Instead of saying, this is just the marble I pulled out of the bucket, and this one wasn't a winner, so I'm going to pull again, you know, just to, to keep trying. Very cool. What is your process for writing a case study? Um, this is such a good question. So, um... When I was writing, when I'm writing my books, I am kind of going back and forth between the frameworks and the case studies. And um, I'm also going back and forth between the different parts of writing that take different kind of energy for me. So, for example, doing a live interview for me is really um, energizing. Writing can be exhausting and I need quiet time and, and a big chunk of time. So I did a lot of my interviews during the week and I did a lot of my my big idea framing on the weekends, my writing on the weekends. Um, So I would do an interview. In the beginning, I would do the interviews just when I had time or when I wanted to so that I could get ideas and be inspired and feel good. And so I didn't necessarily know where the case story was going to fit. So what I would do is I would interview someone. I'd say, okay, I want to do a case study, let's say, on electronic arts. And I have a client there. He was willing to talk to me. So... You know, I talked to him, I wrote up a case study, and it was basically everything that they did. It was just a story, and it had no positioning. It was just like, this is the story of what I know about electronic arts. And then, as I got my frameworks done, I went back and I said, okay, this EA story, where is it going to fit? Because it could fit in a lot of different places. And I thought, well, I think I'm going to put it here. And then I rewrote the story, I edited it for that chapter. So I call them snippets, and I have this whole folder of case study snippets. And so I can pull one out and then put it in the spot where I think it's going to work. And sometimes what would happen is then I'd get close to the end and I'd say, well, I actually want to put this one here and move that other one to a new spot. Um, So there's kind of a little horse trading there, but that's my process. So to summarize, it's interview the person, you know, pick the topic or the person, do the interview, write up a summary of the, the interview and kind of the big ideas and their story and then find a place for it and edit it to fit. And then when I got to the end of my book, like I'm pretty uptight and kind of structured in the way I did it, but I actually wrote up a spreadsheet with all the chapters. And for every chapter, I wanted to make sure that I had a framework, that I had at least two case studies or snippets of some sort that were about real cases. And, um, and then that I had three calls to action. And so I went through the whole book and I was like, oh, look, here's a circle. I don't have a case study here and I don't have one here. And then I would either go back to my snippets or if I couldn't find one, then I would go. I went out at the very end and did a couple more interviews. Fascinating. Did you write your outline uh, and stick to it or was it a, a, a living, breathing document as you discovered new things? 
it was a well, you make a living, breathing document makes it sound really nice and vibrant. And that was not, it felt like a monster that was a shapeshifter. You know, like I'd, I'd be like, oh, wait, I had 10 chapters, but now I'm on chapter five and I have nothing left to say. I've written myself into a corner, um, which happened with my first book where I, I had my 10 chapter outline. I got to chapter five and I literally had nothing else to say. Like I felt like I touched on everything and I, the other chapters now seemed hollow and shallow. And so I had to rip it apart and start over. Um, so what I did for the second book is I, I actually spent a lot of time working on an outline, which I submitted. And that's how I got my book sold. Um, you know, cause you, you sell the book with the business, with the, um, with the business plan for it. So I, you know, I sold it through the outline and then I went back and I said, okay, I might have to change this completely. And I, did have to change it completely. It's a completely different outline than, than what I submitted. Um, and it's painful. It's painful to rip the book apart and say, this outline's not working for me. Did the publisher have any comments about that? Do they say, you promised us this book and you gave us this book? Or were they said, you're the expert, we'll go with the flow? Well, so I was, the first time, I was actually terrified because I, you know, they, we signed the contract, I think December 31st and um, of, of 2013, and the book was due September 1st, and I hadn't even, I mean, I sent them two or three chapters early on, but they hadn't seen anything, and I was really afraid that they were going to reject the manuscript because it was so different, and I sent a note, and I said, you know, hey, I'm really worried. Can you take a peek? And she was like, no, this looks great, and, you know, what, what they said is you, you submitted a good book. It's on the same topic. Um, the, the organization's a little different, but it works really well. And so the second book I did with the same publisher, in part because they were so easy to work with, um, and uh, I knew that she would be flexible if the book held together and was on topic. Fantastic. You know, funny story. I wrote one of the first books about voice recognition technology and business in 1999, and I hit that huh. wall just like you did. I wrote about 100 pages, and there was nothing more to write about because no one was using voice recognition technology <laughs> in 1999. And I had spoken to all the analysts and everyone I could possibly think of. And I called my editor. And I said, like, I just can't write anymore. There's nothing here. I'll give you your advance back. And she said, no, you have to finish this book. And that's when I realized something important about the publishing industry, at least back then. It was the acquisition editors were graded on how many books they signed and brought in. And they had to have a very good completion ratio. Otherwise, they weren't considered a very good acquisition editor. So she forced me to finish the book, which was a good thing. You know, it was good to have on my resume, yeah. but it was hard. So I, I feel for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think the advice to people who are thinking about writing a book is that sometimes the process of writing the book tells you what the real story should be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm interested now in what you what you did when you got to page 100 and realized, well, I, I owe them another, you know, 172 pages or another 72 pages. I imagine it's, it was a slightly different book than you had sold, but I'm guessing that those other 72 pages were really interesting as well. Yeah, when you dig deep, you have to dig deep. So when you're, when you're running the marathon, I guess you find that extra reserves. Robbie, this has been a tremendously wonderful, interesting uh, interview. Why don't you remind us again about who your typical client is so they can get in touch with you and where they can find more information about you. Thanks. Um, RobbieKelmanBaxter.com. Uh, and if you go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash audience, 
um, the word audience at the end, uh, you can get um, some goodies from me. Chapter eight of the Forever Transaction. Uh, you can get my membership manifesto, and you can get some cool slides that are process visuals about what we've been talking about. Um, my usual client is uh, an organization that's trying to um, successfully build subscription revenue uh, of any size and in any industry. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Thank you, Robbie. And thanks, everyone, for listening to the Write Your Book in the Flash podcast with Dan Janelle, the only podcast that shows you exactly how people just like you have built their businesses by writing a book. If you'd like to write your book but don't know where to start, you can find great information at writeyourbookintheflash.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another insightful interview to help you become a top business leader.